What up, boys? What up? Hey, what you guys been up to? Nothing. I heard you. I we were, I was awaiting your return from. Yeah, I am exhausted. I had like a nineteen-hour travel day yesterday. Megan, I spent bon two Jovi. weeks over. In, yeah, Bon Jovi. <laughs> bon Jovi. <laughs> no, it was a it was an awesome trip. Very very much needed. But boy, am I exhausted. Yeah. Sounds like the old stand-up. Just flew in from Chicago. Boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> All right, let's get this started. Listeners, welcome to Forging the Path. So for the listeners, where were you? Yeah, I just got back from like two weeks in Italy with my wife Meg and my brother-in-law and soon-to-be sister-in-law. Very cool. It was awesome. Gathering. Yeah, it was great. Uh, ended up being a whole lot more expensive than anticipated, namely because we brought back a baby. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, Dan's like, I'm like, what? Understand? You, you got a baby? <laughs> I'm so confused. Is that, that how that was, works? Yeah, you yeah, get them yeah. in Italy. Yeah, the storks. The storks. Uh, they migrated and kind of just stayed for the wine. He's gonna have to have an Italian name. No, no, you know, <laughs> Vino Powell. There you go, Vino Tortellini. <laughs> that's a weird way to say it. You came back with a baby. That's, that's no. We've been trying for like six months. It's the same exact thing that's happened last time with Nash. Is you know we were trying for a long time, and then we ended up going to the doctor and set up a uh, consultation for in vitro, and then found out we were pregnant. And it's basically my my thought is give up control. Uh, there's a whole lot of stress hormones involved in being able to be pre- get pregnant. And once Meg kind of gave up hope that it was going to happen naturally, that's when we always get pregnant. Mo babies, very good, great. great. What have you been up to? Me, I just came back from well, San Francisco. I did the uh, a four day seminar there with the Wave the Karambit, which was amazing because uh, it was very Filipino-centric, meaning that San Francisco is one of the oldest settlements in the U.S. since the 1500s plus, right? Um, and I was down in Daly City, where it's hub of a lot of Filipinos. So being something that is cultural to me, because it's Filipino martial arts I'm teaching, I really got to meet a lot of uh, Filipinos there, which I'm not used to um, in the U.S., and uh, had a great exchange, a lot of exchange with, with that to, to reach out and a lot of Filipino food, the customs, traditions with the people there. Um, but then just to have everybody else from all, from all races also uh, attend my seminar. So it was well received. The experience was amazing. Can't wait to do it again. Yeah. You have plans to do something like that again? Uh, yes, actually a tour. I'm thinking about doing a tour. Like an international tour. It. Exactly. But then I want to actually think about recording this whole thing because I want to interview law enforcement units, SWAT, uh, military, people who use the Karambit as part of their job. What who what law enforcement uses the Karambit? Oh, a lot, well, you see, with law enforcement uh, and units and everything else, they have the choice. <laughs> they have the choice to carry whatever backup uh blade they they uh, actually carry. And the reason for that is why would you carry a curved blade? It's not so much that. It's about the ring. It's about the ring that when you were, at least in my blades, they're folders, right? If they're not fixed, you can just search for that. Once you drop your hand in there and you pull out, you've got definitely the retention. So it's so much easier to use the left hand and, and that definitely make it a force multiplier by being able to reach for that ring and not think about the skills you are, especially if you're right-handed. Mm-hmm. That seems like it's, 
with policing, they're in a reactionary force. They're not aggressive. They're not aggressors. And a blade to me sometimes seems like an aggressor's weapon. But do you see, is it pretty well accepted that police officers have blades on hand? They do have that because sometimes the firearms can fail for close quarter. But here's the thing. A blade is nothing else but something that's sharp, that can cut. It's got a point, it can puncture. We are eating with blades every day when you cut your fork, with your fork and knife, everything else. So are you aggressive when you eat? Yes. <laughs> Dude, you should see me eat. All right, Grady. I'm really excited about this episode because this gentleman is not just a friend of mine, but he is truly a living legend, a U.S. living legend, Master Bladesmith and the guardian of the American Bowie, Jerry Fisk. And he'll be coming up right after this break. Are you reading that? No. <laughs> it looked like you were reading off your computer. <laughs> Jerry, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Jerry, how you doing, bud? Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know yet. Well, we're really... Really happy to have you on here. Notice, Jerry, I said living treasure. I didn't use the living relic. Living relic. (laughs) Yeah, well, all all it really means is when I die, I'll be buried treasure. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get into that later on, exactly what that living treasure thing means and what it takes to get there. So for the listeners, Jerry Fisk is an icon in the bladesmithing world. You know, we've got so many bladesmiths, obviously, on our show, Forge and Fire, we, we showcase a lot of these makers and a lot of these skilled bladesmiths and blacksmiths that come in and compete. But I have not heard of one that is as high up in the rankings as you, Jerry. But you started, obviously, way, way behind where you're at now. How'd you even get started as a smith of any sort? Yeah, it was an interesting thing. Um, I live... Oh, about 20-minute drive from Washington, Arkansas, where uh, James Black made a Bowie knife for Jim Bowie. Uh, mm. And when I was 10 years old, my class took a field trip to that blacksmith shop. And there was an old man in there with the forge going. He was playing with the fire. He was dirty, making all kinds of noise. Everything my mother said not do. <laughs> so, Perfect. Yeah, I remember how impressive those large Bowie knife blades he had was, um, and I, it really had a, a, a big interest. And then when I was about twenty years old, um, uh, because of uh, family medical issues, I really, really needed money, <laughs> and um, and I had just made a little crude knife for myself, and I thought, you know, I might can make money at this, so I would buy a bar of steel for $10 and I could make two $8 knives and for $6 profit. And I needed that money for cornbread and beans at the time. Mm. And uh, at that time I thought there was only two other guys in the world making knives. And uh, they already had knives at the hardware store. There's a guy named Mr. Buck and Mr. Case. Mm. And so, um, uh, their knives is around $20 a piece. And so that's why I sold mine for, uh, for $8, my first and, one. And Jerry, how old were you when you first started selling them? Uh, probably about 20. Holy and, holy. Uh, but I had a huge interest in forging because my grandfather would forge his own tools, 
for his uh, peach orchard farms. And so uh, he would let me crank that handle and I kept trying to figure out, okay, I think I can heat a bar of steel up and maybe make a knife. I had absolutely no one to go to. And so um, I set the yard afire two or three times, uh, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. I set the shop afire once. Um, and uh, it was a tough way to learn. Yeah. Uh, I did a huge junk pile from metals I'd have to throw away. Uh, it was large enough. I was on vacation one weekend and uh, somebody come in and stole all of it, sold it. <laughs> so your mother, you said you went to the, uh, when you were 10 years old, you went and watched a blacksmith making, making blades. You didn't just yes. jump right into making them against her will with no, no gear. You, you at least had your grandfather with a, with a forge and it sounds like you had a flywheel coal forge. Um, was she all right with you jumping on board with that after you, Kind no. of showed showed that you no, no not at all. <laughs> no, uh, and and the reason why the way that I grew up in a way is a little different in a sense. Um, uh, we lived in an abandoned railroad depot. Uh, my dad bought the uh, house or depot for two hundred fifty dollars because the railroad said it leaked too bad, and mm. so that's what I was raised up in. And um, uh, we um, we couldn't afford to go out and eat like restaurant stuff. And so uh, on the farm, we, we made everything from ketchup to whatever you needed. You, you made it. Um, mm. And then uh, uh, my mother would, uh, about once a year, she would make us dress up. And then uh, she would uh, dress up as a waiter and would wait on us so <laughs> she could teach us the right silverware to use. Or when we were able to one day eat out, we would at least know the proper silverware. And That's so pretty awesome. there was no time to draw or to make knives. If you had extra time, there was more work to be done. So you had like an artistic drive that was more or less being stifled, but it, was, it wasn't it was out of spite. It was because no, no, you, know, you guys, no, you guys it needed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember a couple of years that mother had put the food on our plates proportionally, so there was was enough to go around. Uh, a couple of winters is tough, and so we learned as kids, work or you're going to starve. Mm. And so uh, even at seventy, I cannot stop myself from pushing forward. So, what was the big job where you grew up, Jerry? Like, what what, what was the industry that you, that your parents were probably hoping you'd get into? Uh. They never did say. You, you, um, again, it's interesting because since there was a five of us boys, Dad made a dollar sixty-five an hour as a common labor. He just wanted you to do better than he. But at thirteen years old, he cut you loose. He never mm -hmm. bought you anything else again except oh, wow. for Christmas. So and so, if you, if you had clothes or books or whatever, you had to buy it. And and so there there was no time for. Play. <laughs> well, if you didn't start selling your blades until 20, what were you doing from 13 to 20 to uh, to make ends meet and fill your stomach? Just trying to learn when I wasn't at the house. <laughs> uh, mm. uh, just trying to learn uh, as much as I could. But years later, when I worked for the railroad, uh, they had transferred me to, to the Memphis, which is the armpit of the world. For, for me, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I had made enough money there 
that I could go back home and live for two years without working. And so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to try the knife business, now it's time to try it. And wow, and how, so how old were you then? Um, about, about 28. But what did you do to be able to afford? What was the living? What was the field of expertise or, or that you were doing? I mean, were you an exotic dancer on the side? Were you a waiter? Were you a carpenter? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I worked a bunch of jobs uh, from thirteen on, and sometimes I, you know, for several years, I held two eight-hour jobs and uh, just making ends meet. And then you became a bleed. It's a little different kind of upbringing. <laughs> it is, but it's it's inspirational. I mean, we. we my generation, I'm 37 years old right now, and my generation doesn't understand, or at least a lot of people mm-hmm. in my generation don't don't understand uh, what well, well, some see, people have gone through. Uh, an interesting thing is, uh, is I do engrave my own pieces, mm-hmm. um, and I have zero art ability because I was re- not raised up with art. We, we thought art was God lived down the street, uh, and... So there was no time to even look at pictures of this. We, we had no books. We had no magazines in the house. And um, uh, so there were no pictures even to look at of, of engraving. And I will tell you, and, and it's very honest, I have zero talent. <laughs> I think I think the, uh, the archives of National Treasures would tend to disagree with you. <laughs> well, but what in a sense I do, but in a sense, in reality, I don't. What, what I have is a drive. Okay, I, I want to draw this leaf. Then I want to engrave it leaf. I'll have to study and work on that. that go. One leaf for two or three months of drawing and practicing over and over and over. And it's motivation and drive. I want to do this. Even yeah. at 70, if I decide I want to be a brain surgeon, fine. Here's my mouth. This is the way I'll go. There, you know, to me... There's no limit. It's just simply you deciding, okay, I want to do this. You figure out the best way to do it, and you go do it. And I, I will say this. He, Jerry says he's being very humble about his uh, engraving skills. I went up on an auction, and I and I own one uh, a twenty two long rifle pistol that he has simply because he didn't make the pistol, but he engraved it. And the work is so intricate in that that to say there's no talent involved and it's all self-taught, that's amazing because it does empower a lot of people to say, hey, just have the drive and you will learn this. Nobody's born as talented as they can become. It takes that drive. It takes the determination. It takes failing yes. a ton yes. to be able to yes. get to where you're at. And you're the perfect example of that. Now, Jerry, you were talking mm-hmm. about how, how through the beginnings of your bladesmithing career, you went through a lot of trials and tribulations. You had yes. one, your mother saying, don't do it. Uh, you had to put food on the table, and in the beginning, obviously, knives weren't doing that. You had fires. You had people stealing your equipment. Uh, was there a time when you had to take a hard look at it and, and say, you know, maybe this bladesmithing thing is not going to work out? I, that never entered my mind that it's not going to work out. That's and, awesome. And simply because I said to myself, I want to do this. I want to learn this. Now, that says doing it as a, uh, a hobby, so to speak. Right. So when I decided that I wanted mm-hmm. to do this full time, since I barely got out of high school, uh, my little class had 23 people and I graduated 21st. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, when, I, when I decided that I wanted to um, learn and try to learn more, 
I want to do this as a business, um, I decided, okay, I've got to go back and get my high school books again, study them at night. Then I started taking classes uh, for journalism uh, for four years at night. I took classes on business management, accounting. But if you're going to do this as a business, then it has to be treated as a business. And mm. that's where sometimes people can go awry is um, um, trying to do it as a business, but they don't fully convert themselves as a business. It seems like a lot of people with, with the artist background run into that. They want to get into, sure. they want to follow their passion. They want to say build knives or make sculptures or paint, but they don't realize how much more effort and time have to go yes. into the business side of things. Yes. And so to me, um, uh, successful businesses, I mean, there's, you got to do it right. And if you decide I want to do this, well, get sit down and get you get your map of how to do it and, and go forth mm. yeah so uh jerry did you uh have like a a desire to try to have your knives stand out from others from other people was that like a, a goal of yours and was that something that led to like the engraving or was that just like a style that people were doing and you wanted to kind of match that style i kept looking at old old pieces and uh from the Italian Renaissance, uh, uh, just some old pieces from various countries. And I got so interested uh, in what various countries was doing, not only uh, the making, but also the embellishment. So uh, then I tightened my belt up and started traveling to these other countries to simply go see what they're doing and see what kind of books they have. Now, the book thing is, a, is a, a big thing for me because I don't read well. Um, I know in a sixth grade, they put me in, quote, special reading classes. And so uh, sometimes I'll have to read things two or three times before I understand. And so um, for me, that was a big thing. That's how I ended up in Russia was I was over there looking around for what kind of books they have and then what is their modern knife makers making. And so, uh, but I ended up mm. in a bunch of countries looking for books. And, and as a result, I have a pretty good little library of, of rare stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. So when you say you had to tighten your belt up, this is before you were known as a night maker. This is before you started making, no, making sir, good it, money. Kind of in the beginning of, of, of the quote being known thing. But by tightening my belt, uh, meaning uh, I asked for no assistance. I didn't ask mm. for uh, government help or art council help. I, I paid for it myself and went on. That's really awesome. Now, it, how many knives would you estimate you've made over the years? I don't know. Uh, I wondered about that. Um, uh, <laughs> when I was young and had a flat belly, I'd make as many as 85 knives a year. Um, uh, now it's uh, considerably less than that. Uh, now I don't make over 20, uh, but Is- they take more time. Okay, so it's not that you're you're not fat, not that you're not able to, but you spend more time on each piece. Correct, correct. And like if, like for instance, a sword, um, I've only had one that I made that I was able to use the third blade on. Sometimes you'll make three to five blades before. Okay, this is the one I want to finish, and you go and bury the rest of them. Oh, really? 
Yes. Mm-hmm. So you're very a, particular uh, about what you put your name on as a finished product. Yes, sir. That's the main thing I inherited from my father was my name, and it, it's kind of important. Mm-hmm. On that note, too, and just to go back to your, your world travels and stuff, um, so it sounds like your your goal here was to uh, to broaden or to, to enhance your, your work. Is that true? Like you're just trying to make yourself as good as you can possibly make yourself? Yeah, uh, it's the it's the pieces that I choose. Say um, to have not did well in school uh, in high school, um, and I still don't have a college degree in anything. But uh, it, it got to where it's kind of fun to learn stuff. <laughs> it, it really opened up a whole whole different world. And so uh, when I discovered books and discovered uh, that uh, what they could do. Um, but what I'll do is I'll take, we'll just say, uh, uh, India, for instance. Uh, every country has a national knife. And so the large countries, such as India, Russia, Brazil, they'll have a different national knife for the South as they will the North, for instance. And so uh, I study on those to make them correct. And then then I'll put my little spin on them. But what, what I, I, I see, because a lot of people don't know here that Jerry is definitely an authority on the subject when it comes to knives, especially the buoy. But what I've seen his other works are is that he is definitely well aware of all different cultures and the kinds of knives that they do and the design of the knives. I mean, you have a lot of stuff from Africa. I mean, the, the blades that you make is because you're yeah. a user. You're a hunter. You know how to skin the animals, how to preserve, what kind of knives. I've seen his work. Yes. But he took it to the next level because you, sir, love to experiment well what made it special i'll I'll say this you made a blade that's 316 million layers and and that's the thing that i i I, you know i'd like you to share that drive with a lot of people who are trying to forge your own path to share with them that hey no matter where you where where you come from it's where you're going and what you're willing to do to get there yes (laughs) i'm i'm all right so jerry i'm i'm looking i'm sitting here in awe looking at some of your pieces and you you had mentioned going to Russia to, to study and find out about some of the blades that they have. And I see you had a commission piece of the Shashka. Now, was that travel to Russia uh-huh. specifically for that commission? Yeah. Uh, the guy called from there. And uh, uh, there is a book that all knife makers needs to have. It's a Stone's Glossary of Arms and Armor. And uh, uh, it's still in print, I think, and you can get it. Uh, it's a great reference book. So the guy called from Russia and said, can you make a Shaska? And I said, sure. So while we're <laughs> talking, I'm looking at Stone's Glossary to see what the hell a Shaska is. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it. But yeah, I can make one. Uh, so the old uh, fake it till you make it. And it, it worked really well. Um uh, it's a sword without a guard, originally from the Caucasus Mountain regions of Georgia. And so uh, traditionally, it would cleave a man from shoulder to saddle in one blow. And uh, uh, I know you could bundle up 13 one-inch ropes and tie them in a bundle. And wow. if you hit it on the proper part of the sword, uh, it, it, all you feel is a ting, and it just go right through it. And that's not just the, the shape of the blade. That's the artistry and skill gone into making the blade and the geometry of the edge and the weight in the right spot yeah. and the curvature of the edge. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. just sharpen a piece of steel and have it be able to accomplish a task like that. Yes. 
when you when you get into the bigger blades, and even Bowie knives is the same way, you can put the uh, where you put the sweet spot. Uh, it's kind of depending on what the person in general is going to cut. It's mm -hmm. like uh, I hired guys to uh, reenactors to sword fight on in my field on horseback, and then sword fight with different swords uh, by hand, and then I had them cutting uh, inanimate objects as well to see how and why uh, they were effective. It's you know as Doug said, it's not just you try to make something pretty. It's got to be. It's got to function. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can go to museums, and this is important for makers uh, that's listening. You can go to museums and see pieces that are 500 years old. Um, and it may be the only piece that maker made that made it into the museum. And your name is on it. So uh, it, it's an important thing to do it right. Mm -hmm. uh, a proper bully knife should be able to chop at least 35 two-by-fours and then put a single hair on your thumbnail and cut a curl off at one hair. Hmm. If you can't do 35, then you need to go back to the basics. Nice. And this is why, it, you know, I'm saying as, a, as, as an end user, Jerry here also is the creator of, well, you can correct me as the creator, but definitely an organizer of the Arkansas cutting competitions. Now, I've had a you know privilege uh, together with Jay Nielsen from Fortune Fire. We both got to judge and be part of that, and we saw it. Now he creates all these tests based on how strong your buoy, because these are basically men who who forge their buoys, and then they have to cut with it, strength test, and learn to cut with it. Could you tell us more about your ideas of how you came up with these yeah. things, Jerry? Or are you just being mean when it's competition time? <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> Uh, all, all of the original cutting contests, like the ones done at uh, the Blade Show in Atlanta, etc., uh, I organized and started those years ago uh, because a lot of makers were not testing their blades. Uh, they let the customer do it, and that's not a, ever a good thing. And so um, that's originally why I set them up. And then um, uh, I still uh, play with the Arkansas ones now. Um, it's it, as you said it's important thing you see sometimes a person may say you have a military background where he goes to work for this company oh a great designer no he ain't a great designer some of them knives just suck but <laughs> what, uh, you know, i can attest to that your background what you say is military teaches you to use what tool you have mm -hmm. and you do become proficient with it all right now that's a different thing than and designing the tool, it's uh, a whole different ballgame. So, Jerry, like going back to, uh, it sounds like you know it's funny because you talked about how in your childhood you you basically weren't. Oh, if you had time to play, then you had time to work, right? So it sounds like that whole mentality kind of carried over into your knife making, and and like if you're going to make a knife, it's got to work, right? It's got to do what it's it's made to do. Is yeah. that right? Well, knife as a tool, yes, sir, but. Uh, I can assure you, you can go out there and, and start hitting a tree or uh, or whatever it's designed to do. Um, I can assure you, I've already done it before it's finished. Yeah. Constantly <laughs> experimenting. That's what I love about what you do. But here's the thing. When did you finally realize, sure. okay, 
I'm at the top of my game. It's now time to share it with the rest of the world. When did you feel that, or did they come find you? Well, that's an interesting thing because uh, I'm not at the top of my game. I'm hmm. still studying and trying to learn this. Now, the, the, the other side of that is, is I will teach anybody anything and everything that I know. I have no problem with that. And the reason is only 10% is going to stick with it. The rest of that 90 is going to say, oh, it's too hard. That's too hmm. difficult. It takes too long. And so uh, that one, that 10% that's out there that will continue on, uh, they have the motivation and drive. So you might as well help them because when they know enough, now I will have somebody to go to and say, how are you doing this? How are you hmm. doing that? You're you not know, so proud to say you're you're the best. You're a perpetual learner, perpetual student, somebody who didn't go well, to college, but you 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 know that you you're always capable of learning from somebody else. But they're not necessarily yes, going to get to the level of you learning from them and, unless you help them with what you know. Yes, sir. A, t a teacher should always teach a student to be better than he is himself, mm -hmm. and or that industry will never go forward. And mm -hmm. so you have to teach them to do better to be better now if, if i and I, i've been buying knives since 1986 87 and uh and the reason i go out and use them when i buy somebody's knives because uh, i started years ago well if his cuts better than mine i need to know what he's doing <laughs> so, <laughs> mm -hmm. i still buy knives to this day yeah yeah and people buy yours so one of the things that um, I will say, you know, by, as a teacher and student, one of your students is now teaching co-side with you, and he's a Fortune Fire champion. And we're talking about Ricardo Villar, who's from Brazil. And um, he, the way he told me how he met you. So he brought you to Brazil. He sold his, was it a car or motorcycle? He sold, I think, his car to bring you down there. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? They're, they're good folks. And when I first went there, uh, I'll... Over all of uh, Brazil, we could only gather up 16 people that had some experience uh, at ma making knives. And they were interested in seeing what the rest of the world was going to, um, what they were making in modern times. But one of the national knives they have is a, called a Sorocaba. Uh, There's still, at that time, there was one old man left, Senor Beatty. Uh, Senor Beatty was the only gentleman still left making the Sorocaba. Nobody else was making them. So I said, I'll, I'll show you, but we're all going to learn how to make score colors. <laughs> so because you have to preserve your own history. And then so we made sure we preserved that. And it's a, 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 a little hot thing down there right now, collecting sore colors. And um, so uh, I feel good about that. Um, but it's simply to encourage folks. And when you... Go repeatedly back. I probably was down there nine or ten times. Uh, when you go back repeatedly, you have to be real careful with as a teacher. Uh, you only teach to a certain level. Then after that, you no longer teach. You become a cheerleader and to, hmm. to, to cheer them on. If you continue to try to teach, you're saying you still haven't learned. And and so you you get them to a certain point, kick them out of the nest. And and cheer them on from there, and that, that's, that's what we ended up. With. It is a hotbed of mountain down there. So, Jerry, I want to kind of jump back to like your beginnings as a as a bladesmith. Yes. All right, so you've been doing this for quite a while. You you got the itch. 
what's that? 51 years. 51 years. All right. You got the itch yeah. when you were 10 years old. In 51 years, how have you seen uh, this art form, this skill set, or the, the world of knife making evolve? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting deal there. Uh, you know, uh, modern advances in steels is, uh, is remarkable. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm all for embracing that. But also, too, uh, everybody needs to remember where you came from, the history of it, and study that because um, uh, sometimes you can go so far back in time, a person can start going, going ahead mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, because there's so much that we have, uh, have forgotten and don't know. Uh, this one handle I've worked on for a year, uh, close as I can find one done to it, like it is 300 years ago. So I have no one to ask how this guy did that. Mm. And uh, it took me about a year to figure out how he was able to do that. And so um, now I will duplicate that, but then I'm going to take it a, 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 a lot further than what he possibly did. What blade uh, is that you're talking about? It's a, mm, <laughs> it's a solid material. I'm not going to get into too much detail yet. Because I got you. No, uh, <laughs> nobody's doing it, but it, what do you say? It's a solid handle. Okay. And I'm going to go inside and uh, engrave inside that solid handle it. You don't want to give up your tricks just yet? Not yet, not yet. Because mm -hmm. nobody's ever seen anything like this in modern times. Ooh, something to look forward Very to. Cool. Very cool. So, so, Jerry, how has the world of like selling knives kind of evolved since you got started? Is that different, too? Well, that's a really big change here. That's probably the biggest change of all. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my first write-up about knives um, was a magazine article. And at, at that time, if you got into a magazine... Uh, article, you could get six months to two years worth of work uh, wow. orders by, by mail because there's no internet. And But when the internet did come along, uh, uh, it has greatly changed uh, that. Um, it's no longer you get an article, you're just, you know, out of boy, you know, do you have a social media account <laughs> that mm -hmm. I can follow? You know, and so uh, that's kind of where really it all is right at this time. Do you think, or do you see that the the internet and social media is bringing a whole lot more eyes onto uh, the world of knife making, but not sure. as many quality buyers? Uh, it's it's still it's still there. Quality buyers is still there. It's just uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my very best clients do not go to knife shows at all. They don't have the time for that. Mm. And so um, there's all these kind of markets out here. Uh, people who collect collect. And so it may be that you do a car show or, or it's a whole different ball game uh, with some of this. Uh, I, I started a little micro show, uh, which was basically a one man show that I invited a couple of makers to. And even at this uh, coming year will be the 20th anniversary of the knife show, the micro show. And then uh, uh, there is a total of seven makers the collectors vote on what makers they want to see. And then uh, we don't allow any other makers there. Mm. Uh, pay a $300 fee uh, to, to be there. And so they get to know these makers a lot better. And so therefore their orders are good. Um, wow. and so, 
different concept of a of a knife show. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. very smart though. That's a great idea. Totally you... different. That's where I met Jerry. Yeah, Jerry invited great, me uh, to be at one of his micro shows. Yeah. I've only heard about it. So what I've seen from this, it's so exclusive. Even collectors are not allowed to just jump in, right, Jerry? It's a there's only a certain amount of numbers, yeah. and if that seat is full. You can't get in. You, it's got to be an act of somebody dying before you can go be one of the collectors <laughs> to be able to bid on it. Yeah. And what I saw was the quality of stuff yeah. in there. So we're talking about, okay, so when I was there, my experience, cheapest knife started at 600 for a small knife, and the top one went for 15 k Wow. And they were all sold out. Uh-huh. Six makers allowed to make, what, six to eight blades each. But the quality is so high. And the, yeah. the the knowledge of these collectors out there. And then these are people who come back over and over again. So for the blade yeah. makers out there, it's about you knowing how to market yourself. That's important so that people like Jerry will notice your work so that you might be invited one day to one of these exclusive uh, shows. Uh, I, I enjoy the marketing side of it every bit as much as making a knife. And, uh, you know, when you can go to Walmart and buy a 50-pound sack of cow manure, that means you can sell anything. <laughs> <laughs> Learning where the market is and how to package it. Well, of all the blades you've made in your 50-some-odd years, is there a style that you would call your favorite, or do you just like to continually try something new? My The standard favorite is a bowie knife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess because I grew up so close to it and the history uh, I now own, own with a friend. I own uh, James Black original property where he made the Bowie knife. For, oh wow! Uh, yep. And uh, I've uh, forged a few knives on there. Uh, I try to reserve it to no more than two knives a year. Uh, forged on the actual property. Oh, um, wow. I, yeah. I, I just it kind of a full circle for me. That's how it started out and that's i guess that's where i'll end up <laughs> so, but. yeah jerry's one of the guardians of the iconic uh, american bowie knife yeah. with with some other makers because not only um did he was exposed to it but he also is one of the guardians in the museums that featured the bowie knife in arkansas can you tell us a little bit about james black yeah he, uh, he, he was really really interesting guy uh the bowie number one is a large blade most of the blades that mr black made was probably six inch blades but he did make some large ones and bowie number one it's the only exhibit there in little rock at the historic arkansas museum it's a really interesting design because the handle kicks upward Hmm. and you think you know how does that work real well but it's an interesting thing because jim bowie was a rough and tumble guy who was in a, a a duel or two um and so bowie number one when you turn it upside down with the cutting edge up and you extend your hand like you're fencing. The point is exactly on line with your elbow, the same as a little ape or a little foil will be because uh, the style of fighting at that time, uh, which he relied on the knife for, uh, was either fencing or in a bar fight uh, with the cutting edge up. And so this is an excellent knife to fence with. <laughs> And so it, it, there was a lot of thought went into that. Yeah. Wow. A lot of blood, too, apparently. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> that made him an icon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Jim Bowie and James Black were friends uh, uh, several times. We have records where Bowie would come and visit with uh, uh, Mr. Black on that property. 
that was the road that was the jumping off point to what what is now Texas, but which is Mexico at that time. And Mr. Black had one of the last businesses uh, is only 10 miles before the jump off point. And so uh, if you need something made or whatever, uh, he was there to do that right right before you entered a foreign country. Now, Jerry, this is one of the things that really, uh, you know, that I'm impressed with. You showed me a million layer blade and then later on you created a 316 million mm -hmm. layers. Could you tell me about these blades and the process? What does it take to create? Is that the most you've done so far? 316 million layers? Just just 360 million. That's just, it. Yeah, it's that, yeah, that's only it. 360. <laughs> 360. No, I, I did one with a little over 700 million. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. Just to stretch it out. I mean, at that point, you're basically just making your own steel, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But now, a lot of that, now, again, because of my travels, I have uh, unusual methods at times. And so when you're folding so many times, you're going to be losing the carbon mm -hmm. uh, in your steel, and which makes the steel harden. So I will reintroduce carbon as I go. Uh, I'm losing some, but I'm also putting some in. And uh, when you fold so many times, you lose actual material as well. So I'm always having to insert a piece, and that changes your count, of course. And mm -hmm. then, uh, but uh, there's two different main methods I use to introduce um, carbon back into the steel. One of them is with sugar. Uh, when sugar burns, it's pure carbon. And then uh, uh, I'll also mix a little. Uh, uh, activated charcoal, which is carbon, into my welding flux. And so uh, I'm putting it in between the layers and I'm putting it into the steel itself because the steel will accept carbon at a certain rate. And so this way I can use junk steel, for instance. Um, uh, you know, I, a gentleman had me make his knife out of a, a Toyota car hood once and uh, the steel <laughs> wasn't all that good. But by the time I got through with it, it was really good steel. And because I kept introducing carbon to it, so uh, that that uh, process is called uh, carbon migration, correct? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. We hear Ben and uh, but, Ben, Dave, and Jay talk about carbon migration a bunch. I had no well, idea you could do it with sugar. Well, well that's kind of a Caribbean technique. Uh, if you think about it, and you remember the Japanese sword makers would brush their steel with uh, wheat, wheat straw or rice straw, and when it would burn as they were brushing it. Uh, it was introducing carbon that way. And so since mm. I don't have straw, I use what I have available. Wow. So Jerry, you've gone such a long way since the beginning of your knife making, right? Like as far as like how much you've learned, would you say you have like just a lot of drive, a constant drive to, to learn and to, and to almost be a mad scientist when it comes to this kind of stuff? Well, I, in a way, but in a way I'm still an old dinosaur. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes the guys get so buried up into uh, body-centered or face-centered cubics of an atom and how to add, do, what transforms. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you can get yeah. so buried down in that, you forget uh, some of the stuff that you really need to be paying attention to. Right. Um, and the actual cutting... Uh, sometimes I've had folks refer to me as a cutologist. That's a person who studies a cut. All right? And um, because what does 
cut on a knife, you know, because I can take a Campbell soup can and cut you once really, really hard, but it's not going to hold an edge. Um, and so the really the most important thing on the cut itself is the geometry of the blade, not the steel. The steel only has to do with uh, how long it might hold an edge or how much tough it might be, but it has nothing to do with actual cut. That's geometry. Yeah, we talk a lot on the show about uh, the different edge geometries and one one that Dave absolutely loves and, and Ben and, and Jay as well, talking about the apple seed edge. It's not just a straight down to zero. There's curvature to it. Would you yes. would you say that there's a specific edge type that you that you like or you think is the best? That that would be it, and because when you cut something, you have material flow uh, around the blade, the mm-hmm. same as air around a wing or water around the end of a boat. You have material flow, and so uh, if the geometry is proper, the it will flow through it better, seeming like it's more sharper, but it's not. The geometry just. Uh, but I can take that apple seed, and I can improve on it. I'm playing with that right now. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, cutting down even more resistance yeah. uh, to, to see what's going on. When in your uh, in your experience or your the timeline of blade making, did you start diving into the science side of things? Pro- probably by the second knife I made. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, it's got a function. Uh, uh, <laughs> for some reason, that second knife cut a whole lot better than that first one. And so, why? <laughs> and so... I'm still trying to figure out why 51 years later. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the one thing that I've learned from you, Jerry, is why. Why does it work? And if you don't have a why, you're constantly looking for questions to get that why. Why? Why this? And that's how it became a science. Uh That's what I loved about the way you think. Uh, I had a a, a friend who's a a master smith. We would always... uh, uh, Make a blade with something, a new process or something, and we'd send it to each other for to test it. And uh, uh, so um, I developed a, uh, a unique way of, of heat treating uh, on a certain steel. I can uh, actually heat treat it even if it had an ivory handle on it already. Mm. I can heat treat it. And then I could bend it into a 360-degree circle, and it wouldn't break in half. And But yet a file would just skate off of it. <laughs> wow! wow. So, yeah, yeah. He, it, it's a little different process than uh, than you'd normally see. It was a uh, kind of amazing. Wow! <laughs> kind of still blowing your mind the the science and and abilities of steel. One of the everybody it, talks it, about steel being so hard, and yet if if worked properly, it can be an extremely malleable, flexible forgiving material well there's always the questions too right like there's always like what if i did this what you know that worked but what if i do it this way or what if this mm-hmm. happened you know yes. and we, we approach yeah. that all the time on forge and fire uh and it's so it's so interesting i mean i love i don't really have a question about it <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just it's a fun aspect of knife making um, um, if you were to sit down with somebody who had just started making a knife they got their hands on a on a flywheel coal forge and they wanted to to get into it what kind of advice would you give somebody of the, the new blade maker generation on how to really dive into it? Yeah, uh, push forward. Not It's not about uh, the money. Um, if, if you're going to do this, um, you should always leave the world better than you found it. And so if, you, uh, if you're going to be a part of this, 
then be a part of it. Get in there and push forward so you can help the, the industry uh, that's helping you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that is my sole thing to say, I guess, is keep pushing forward. Jerry, do you, do you have any regrets about getting into this industry, uh, becoming a full-time knife maker? No, no, absolutely. No That's a hard, <laughs> hard no. Interesting people. Uh, some of them are just great friends, and some of them are spooky. <laughs> but but uh, uh, it, it can be amazing, the uh, uh, amount of people that's out there that is interested in what those you learn. I love seeing the youngsters push out there because uh, if they don't push, then it will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what does it mean to you to be uh, making a career out of doing something that you just love doing? You know, I told my youngsters when I was about 28, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to do this. I said, now, you kid, y'all won't have the nicest Christmas present to some of your friends. I said, but a person only lives one time. And so I said, I'm going to do what I want to do for my living, something mm-hmm. that I enjoy. And as a result, they do too. Uh, they do the same. Uh, it's something that they enjoy what they're doing. And so I, I think that's a, a, a big thing. And But it didn't happen by chance. It uh, I was determined to do it, and I set forth and, and did so. A lot of time, a lot of grit, a lot of determination, and a whole hell of a lot of hours in front of a fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doug, Doug touched on it in the very beginning in your intro. You are a living national treasure. Can you explain to us and the listeners what exactly that means? The University of uh, North Carolina has a, um, they're kind of head that program. Uh, for instance, Japan, they have a national treasure. Uh, England has a, what they call a gold medal blacksmith, I think is chosen once a generation. Um, but it's to honor, as I understand, someone they feel like has um, helped uh, their chosen craft. And so um, I was really surprised, uh, honestly, when I had, was chosen for that. Um, uh, I did become involved in it, and I thought, oh, man, this is fascinating. Uh, when uh, Whenever they pick the guy that they're going to pick, uh, I want to make sure that we have another knife maker. Uh, at that time, uh, I had already w- submitted Bill Moran's name and Bostorinsky's name because uh, we're going to keep on this. To one day, a knife maker will be recognized for that, and by doing so, it's not all about weapons. It's about a traditional craft form hmm. and so i was really surprised when they when they did choose me and i was i took that and came back to my own state and i asked uh then governor mike huckabee i asked him why don't we have this for our own state and recognize a state treasure and he said well, that's a good idea write that up <laughs> <laughs> that's all it took <laughs> i wrote all the guidelines and, and such yeah. and so uh, we recognize our artist in traditional craft we do have two uh, knife makers but we have uh, other craft forms as well and, and as far as my part it's very humbling to me to be able to help recognize people that do go to such an effort 
Now, throughout your time as a as now like a, a national treasure, you're one of, if not the the top blade maker in the United States, one of the top in the world. Is there anybody along your path that you could say you wouldn't have been able to do it without them? Oh, much of them. Yeah, just about just about everybody would stand still long long enough for me to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> When I became a journeyman smith with the ABS, uh, I took it literally as a journeyman means you travel. And so I would travel to other knife maker shops, ask permission, can I watch you? And I'd sit over in the corner and I'd write notes. And when he would take a break, then I would start asking all those questions that I would write down meanwhile. Mm. You know, why and how. And, and, uh, and it's an interesting thing because uh, I'm partially colorblind, so I don't see... Uh, those same colors that most everybody sees uh, in the forge. And so mm. I go by, I had to learn a different way. And and so that's the way that I teach. Um, I, I know what colors they're seeing, but I, I'm not seeing what they're seeing. Are you utilizing salts for your temperature gauge? Or no, no, just heat. No, just heat. Mm. Uh, I, I've learned to uh, probably hit it about 50 degrees every time. Uh, but now, you know, one of the legends of James Black is that he pulled a leather curtain so no one could see his secrets of heat treating. Well, what he was doing, he was making sure that lighting was the same every day. Ah. Sunny, sunny, cloudy, whatever he would. And, uh, and that's one of the ways that I taught myself. I love yeah. the fact that as a, you took that journeyman, um, you know, uh, literally and became, and be, you know, wanted to travel. I think that's, that's probably the best advice to give to some upcoming up and coming, you know, bladesmiths right now too, is that you should definitely see these, you should watch people firsthand. Cause like watching people make blades on YouTube or whatever, is just not the same as seeing it live at all. Like right, right. We, we can attest right. to that on fortune fire, watching people make knives live all the time. It's just not the same. Different people learn different ways. You know, some can just study a book and they and they've got it. And uh, but most folks, including myself, I, I need to see this. And then, of uh, course, uh, lighting. I mean, every, everything changes everything. And so you can't. It's just not a cut and dry thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not. It's when you fail is when you learn. Mm-hmm. Now you, you may you may uh, learn a lot. <laughs> you know, you may have eight or ten specific blades that have failed but meanwhile if you don't let it frustrate you too much you're learning every time well jerry it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you hearing about your past your upbringing and your passion for for knives and for bladesmithing i'm sure we're uh you're talking about not wanting to not want to sit around with idle hands so we don't want to take any more of your time up let you get back into the forge but again it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you i've enjoyed it guys yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Jerry. Is there anything you have coming up as far as like blade shows or any 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 place that people can come see your work? The uh, Dallas Safari Show in January. Uh, I'll be there. Awesome. And um, also that uh, Jerry has an active Instagram page. We can see a lot of his works, and they also yeah. broadcast a lot of Instagram live from the James School of uh, Blacksmithing or Bladesmithing, so that uh, yeah. they talk about all the students and their makers and what they're doing. So that's always there. Yeah, the last Friday of every month. Yes, sir. Last Friday of every month. Yep. And uh, we didn't sure invite y'all to uh, take a look at it and see. Thank you. So all much, right. Sir. All right, Bubba. 
You bet, guys. Uh, y'all, y'all have a good day. You too. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Dude, Doug, what an awesome guest. I told I mean, you, the masters of masters, man. I mean, he's got so many, and we just barely t- skimmed the surface, barely skimmed the surface yeah. of what this man's all about. I'd like to get down there to Arkansas and, and sit down yeah, with him. Got like to, he said, you just sit to. sit in the in the shadows of his shop and just watch him work. When I met him, I was just in awe. And I go, I, I've got to work with this man because these are the legends and things like this you want to preserve. Yep. I think a the, lot thing of the-, that makes, the thing that makes Jerry so different than a lot of the, not the, not the sound, not the bad talk. Any any blade bladesmiths out there, but there's a lot of bladesmiths that you know just do the same thing over and over again. Like mm-hmm. the thing that Jerry does so well is that he does things so different all the time. He's not just a bladesmith or a blade maker as a career. This is his life. The one takeaway, well, one of the takeaways I had immediately was, if you want to be successful in forging your path, you must have the drive to work period. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to be handed to you. But what work are you going to do that makes sense to really complement that drive? The why. That was a heck of an interview we just did. All right. So that was another great episode on Forging the Path. Be sure to catch us on any platform you have to listen to your podcast. And make sure to download or visit us on www.forgingthepath.com. Usually there's three W's. <laughs> <laughs> www.e. <laughs> dot crushingtheenemy.com